Psalm 32, about right in the middle, as we're continuing in our summer in the Psalms. This is a passage that I pray will be of great, great encouragement to many of you, if not all of you. So let's stand together as we read this passage together. It's Psalm 32, verses 1 to 11. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. For you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. As we may evaluate how things are going in our society, one of the things that may come about is really just trying to understand the notion of guilt. Uh, There was an article that was written back in 2017 in the UK in the the, uh, paper called The Guardian. Deborah Baum starts off the article by saying this, I feel guilty about everything. Already today, I felt guilty about having said the wrong thing to a friend. Then I felt guilty about avoiding that friend because of the wrong thing I'd said. Plus, I haven't called my mother yet today. Guilty. I really should have organized something special for my husband's birthday. Guilty. I have the wrong kind of, I gave the wrong kind of food to my child. Guilty. I've been cutting corners at work lately. Guilty. I skipped breakfast. Guilty. I snacked instead. Double guilty. I'm, I'm taking up space in this world where there's not enough space in it. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Later in the article, she says something that uh, I found very interesting because this, she's not a believer. And we as believers, we tend to uh, know how to navigate and understand what the, the notion of guilt is. But I'm, I'm, I'm finding it fascinating about how those in the secular world, those that are not in Christian world, that guilt is a bad thing. And you want to do everything that you can to avoid feeling or being guilty, even if it means getting all sorts of rights that you may have in the culture that says what you're doing is okay. You don't feel need, need to feel guilty about that. You're okay. This is what she said in the article. What is the potency of guilt? With its inflationary logic, guilt looks, if anything, to have accumulated over time. Although we tend to blame religion of condemning man to life as a sinner, the guilt may have attached to specific vices, vices for which religious communities could prescribe appropriate penance. 
now seems in a more secular era to surface in relation to just about anything. Food, sex, money, work, unemployment, leisure, health, fitness, politics, family, friends, colleagues, strangers, entertainment, travel, the environment, you name it. And as she goes through these various types of guilt and even believes that society a lot of times blames religion for this notion of guilt and that it needs to move away from that, the, the secular world does the same things. You, you're how you are because of the guilt of your parents. You're how you are because of the guilt of the color of your skin. You're how you are because of your political parties and your political politics that you may have. You're either too far right, you're too central, you're too far left, you're too this, and you should feel bad about that. And if you go into the feeding frenzy that is social media, you will see over and over. You put any idea out there, no matter how well crafted, someone is going to come along and make you feel bad for feeling the way you feel. Guilt, though, I think is a significant part of who we are. Guilt can be overdone, yes. But there can be an aspect about guilt where it provides a proper boundary for us. Um, And I think when we understand what God is saying in his word about guilt, that it's really not necessarily when we're talking about it from a biblical standpoint, it's not something to run away from. We are guilty. We are not perfect. There are things that we have done wrong. How do we navigate through that? How do we go from feeling this heavy hand on us to realizing that God is not just that heavy hand to try to get us where we need to be, but is our hiding place? that protects us and preserves us even in the midst of this broken world. We need to have that. We need to understand that. And we need to understand the reason that if we are guilty, then we need forgiveness. What does God do to provide that forgiveness for us? Now, you would expect me maybe to go to the Gospels or even to some of Paul's letters. And yet here we are, a thousand years before Christ came along into the world and a thousand years before Paul comes along, God is already setting the table for us and for his people to be able to understand what this is all about. So as we, re, as we, as we continue rather to go through Psalm 32, let's look at four things here. Number one, I think it's four. Is it four? Okay. Hey, if it's not, then it'll be more. And if it's or less, one or the other, you know. But we're talking about the heaviness of the conviction of sin. Verses 1 to 4 talk about this. Verses 1 and 2 talk about what it means to be blessed. And then verses 3 and 4 talk about what it means to have a recognition that we are not right. That something is, is off and we'll see why. Verses 1 and 2, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When we talk about being blessed, it's more than just being happy. Actually, when we're blessed, when we're blessed, what it means is, is that we are finding favor with God. And therefore, there is a joyousness that is there. There is a covenant relationship that we have to where all of God's people are truly blessed, not because you're able to find that parking space at the grocery, not just because that, you know, you're able to wake up on time and only had to hit the snooze bar twice rather than three times. There is, there, there, there's more to it than that. Blessed means that God, that you're, you are right with God, that God has, that you have found favor with Him because of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. We can't be blessed on our own. God provides that provision, which is what usually is provided with a provision. God provides that 
in the person of Christ. But we're blessed, right? But what happens when we're not blessed? Well, when we see this passage here, there's three categories of sin. You see the word transgression, you see the word sin, and you also see the word iniquity. It's important when we're reading something to understand some of these definitions. A transgression is a presumptuous sin. It is a choice to sin. I'm going to do it. There's kind of an impulsive nature to it because our nature leans that way. Whenever we're away from the things of God, we tend to drift away. When We drift away from God and begin to go and do things that God is not pleased with. When We're left to our own devices. We need the Spirit to bring us toward Him. But when we're left on our own, we go away from Him. That's a transgression. The word sin, which is kind of how we categorize all of these, but the word sin is actually a word that talks about missing the mark, like an archer who misses the bullseye or who misses the target altogether. That's what it is. We're missing the mark. And so when Paul talks about that all have sinned, I read this earlier, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that's the idea, is that we who are trying to attain the glory of God, but we do it on our own, we're going to miss the mark. That's a sin. And you can do it either brazenly outside the church, or you can be even someone who is in the church, but you're trying to do church work and kingdom work in your own power. You're going to miss the mark. That's sin. Sin can happen actually inside the church, believe it or not. Shocker, I know. But sin can actually happen inside the church. When we talk about iniquity, iniquity is the one that is premeditated. You want to do it. You long to do it. You're thinking about doing this. We're going to go. God's not pleased with it. I don't care. I'm going. I'm going to go do this. So there's some significant aspects of it. But notice how someone's blessed. Blessed is the one whose transgression is what? Forgiven. Your transgression can be forgiven. My transgression, yes. You mean doing this? Absolutely. God will can and will forgive that transgression. Your sin is covered. We're going to talk about coverage in a moment. But your sin, it's covered. He doesn't see it anymore. Your iniquity, it's not going to be counted against your account anymore. How wonderful that is to be able to have that freedom because verses 3 and 4 show us how horrible it is to be under the conviction of sin. Notice the, the metaphors that are used here, the, the imagery. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Well, what do our bones do? Our bones give us structure. Our bones hold us up. If we didn't have any bones, what would we be? We'd be blobs. And we would not be able to be, be, be held up, right? And those of you that may be struggling with osteoporosis, you know how important it is, you know, and what, what, what is lost when you're not able to have that bone vitality anymore. But I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Yeah, you may be able to hide it really well and get dressed up really nice, but on the inside, you know the groaning of that cell. Oh, I can't believe I did that. Oh, I can't believe I said that. Oh, why did I do that? Been there? Oh, boy. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Whose hand? Who's the your in your hand? God does this to us? kind of a God is this? I thought God was supposed to make me feel good. I thought God was to affirm me. I thought God was supposed to be one who made me happy. No, God's job is to make you holy. And that heavy hand is an instrument that he uses to get you to holiness. 
So you see, for my hand was heavy upon me, uh, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Um, John was telling me right before the service, how many of you tried to do some yard work yesterday? Good times, wasn't it? I mean, you're, and you're having to drink water, 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 water. We quit about 1130 and I'm, my, my bones and my muscles are still feeling that because I could tell as I, as we were getting to do all of that stuff and I was out in that sun, you could feel the vitality put, being pulled out of you. And that was the idea is that your vitality was changed. You didn't have that life in you anymore. That's what sin does. Sin will pull the life out of you. Sin is a destroyer. You will not be blessed by God. And by that, I'm not talking about materially. I'm talking about you're not going to be blessed by God if you are engaged in these transgressions, these sins, these iniquities. And it sounds terrible. Why would God make me feel so bad about that? A.W. Tozer, one time, he said, when I understand that everything that is happening to me, happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. I'm going to read that again. When I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. That's why Psalm 66, 18, it says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You're wanting to live your own life. You're wanting to engage in the transgressions and the sins and the iniquities. You're wanting to do all of that. Something tough goes on. And then all of a sudden you start praying. And it doesn't seem like God's listening. Have you been listening to him up until that point? But no, you've been listening to the desires of your flesh. You've been wanting to go after that. And now you're expecting God to listen. If I had cherished iniquity, cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So don't get aggravated that God may not be listening to you right now. Have you been listening to him up until that point? Prayer is a conversation. It's not just a one-way street. So that's why in Romans 8, 26 to 30, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 29, in the middle of that. God foreknew and also predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers. He, he is working in us to conform us into his image. So when God's hand is heavy upon you, you could be shaking your fist. God, how can you be making me feel so bad about what I want to do? Or there's another option, a better option, the only option. And it's found in this second point here, the hopefulness of confession of sin. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice what's happening. It says in verse 3 that he kept silent. He kept silent. Now he's not keeping silent. He's acknowledging, and he is confessing. 
and he is repenting. We're going to see the repentance part later. But acknowledgement, I am a sinner. I, I, I am guilty. I'm going to confess that to the Lord. And through the strength that he gives me, I'm going to repent and not go that way anymore. And forgiveness will be ours. We have to be careful. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says, For godly grief or godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. So that heavy hand that's upon, that's upon you, God is using that heavy hand to agitate you, to disturb you, to get you to where he would have you to be. So when God's heavy hand is upon you before your sin, you know what it can do? Instead of it causing lament, which it, it, it should because of your own sin, it should cause praise. God, you love me enough not to leave me where I am. But I love where I am, God. No, I, you, you, you won't love it. You won't love it. You may think you love it, but you won't love it. You're going to be miserable. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief or worldly sorrow leads to death. The sin that you have to hold on to, it will destroy you. So what are we holding on to? What is, is, is the heavy hand upon you right now? Is God working to get your attention about something that you need to deal with in him, that's a good thing that he's doing. He's not simply going to wipe away mistakes. I remember when we were, this was back in the days of chalkboards, and I remember when I was, you know, second or third grade, and we'd be doing math problems, and I would, you know, we would do some math problems. It would be a long one, and I wouldn't quite get it right because, as you know, I can't do math in front of a lot of people. And so when we're doing math and we're doing math, and the teacher's like, no, 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 and she would just erase it. And I would just go and sit, and I would try to learn how to, how to figure it out. That's not quite what God does. God doesn't just erase your sin. He gives you a new heart that will not want to sin. And so I went back to, the, I went back to my chair, and I'm like, well, I hope I get this. I hope I get this by the next test. I hope this works. But she just erased the chalkboard. Now there's, you know, whiteboards. And that's, what, that, but that's not what God does. God does more than that. The word cover. If you see that word cover, now, I want you to think, just try to, try to remember back to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was, the, was basically a chest that had some other furniture mainly, and it also had some angels that were right over top of it. And in that chest of the Ark of the Covenant, the main body of the Ark of the Covenant, was you know some, some manna that, as a reminder of the deliverance that they had of the wilderness as they were going from Egypt into the promised land, but also had the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And that represented God's provision and protection for us, but it also represented the fact that God was going to hold us accountable. And so what, what, what would end up happening was the, the priest would come in through a sacrifice and he would sprinkle the blood on the lid of that, of that ark. That lid's called the mercy seat. And what that lid would do, the presence of the Lord would be in the midst of those angels right above it, and he would basically sit on that seat, and he would dispense mercy. But when we talk about it and we sing those old hymns, you knew it was coming, we sing those old hymns about the blood of Jesus covers our sin 
That's where that goes back to. Because the blood of that lamb covered it. Because if that, if that lamb, if that, those sins were uncovered, then God's full wrath and full, full justice would go out against all of his people. But no, that's what we deserve. And, and lest you think we don't deserve this, you know, think about someone who comes uninvited to your home. And they want, and they just want to burst in. You don't know them, and they're being forthright. You should let me into your house. And what would you say? Well, n- no, no, you didn't have anything to do with me before. You're not listening to me now. No, I'm not. That's kind of what we do with God. We don't listen to Him at all. We don't listen to His word, and yet we still expect Him to let us in. That's that's not how it works. Something has to be done. And there is God covers our sin. He covers our transgressions. He covers our iniquities to where we are we are right before him. And our sins are forgiveness are, are forgiven. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, you know the word. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us. From all unrighteousness, that's what the blood of Jesus does. You think 409's good? You think Comet's good? You think that Swiffer's good in cleansing? The blood of Jesus is the greatest cleanser in all the universe. There's none that touches it. And we, if we expect to be clean aside from that, we're deceiving ourselves. And so because of that acknowledgement and confession and repentance, we can find forgiveness, but then there's more to it than that. You go look at verse 3, that there's the hiding place of Christ's compassion. In verses 6, verses 6 and 7, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him, for you are a hiding place for me. You preserved me from trouble. You, surrounded, you surround me. With shouts of deliverance. What's happening? Well, what's happening here is that no longer are they silent in their lives. Sometimes when we come to Christ, all of a sudden now, okay, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to pray. I don't need to do anything. I'm good. But a a life in Christ is a changed life. And we're going to want to continue to connect with him. And so we offer prayer. We don't stay silent. We offer prayer to him. Because in the, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. These are the waters of judgment. And it goes back to Noah and the ark. Because all of the world was destroyed because of their sin, except for those eight that were in the ark. And, because, and the rush of those great waters that rose and rose and rose did not touch those that were in the ark. So that's why in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to God for he will, he will abundantly pardon. What's, what's, the, what's the message that's here that may not be necessarily right at the surface? Seek the Lord while he may be found. There may come a time and there will come a time when he won't be found. There will come a time when that time is over. Now is the time, today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2 says it. And we need to make sure that we're not just simply listening to the word and saying, uh-huh, in all the right places. We have to make sure that we are prayerfully absorbing everything that God is telling us and to make sure that we are seeking him while he may be found. When you pass through the waters, Isaiah 43 says, I will be with you. 
Through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This is what he's done. He has taken us away from the judgment of those waters of judgment that were going to overwhelm us, the fires of judgment that are going to overwhelm us outside of Christ, and he has put us in a hiding place where nothing can touch us. Not death, not our enemies, not ourselves, not anybody. We are protected, and there, and that's where number three, just want to make sure that you see this, number three, about the hiding place of Christ's compassion I want to make sure your notes are there so when you look back on them later, you'll remember the compassion that God has for us, not giving us what we deserve, and the mercy and grace he extends. And then lastly, number four, the, the helpfulness of Christ's classroom. And Christ teaches us things. Notice these words in verse 8. I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you. With my eye upon you. Now, I read commentaries, and some of the commentaries are saying this is David talking, and some of the commentaries say this is God talking. My response is yes, because David is being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this. So I don't think we need to spend too much time talking about is David talking about this? Is God talking about this? We can just say yes and realize that God is there by the Holy Spirit to come and to teach us. And as he was saying over and over in John, John 14, 15, 16, I will guide you into all truth. I will guide you into all truth. I will guide you into all truth. I will teach you. I will counsel you. I will come alongside you. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. And when we are saved, when God rescues us, he gives us all the Holy Spirit we're ever going to have. It's just the flesh needs to get out of the way. And sometimes the flesh, boy, it gets in the way, doesn't it? It doesn't take much. Uh, when I read verse 9, I, I, I think of a, a, that prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Because we're stubborn. We don't like anybody telling us what to do. And sometimes we don't even like God telling us what to do. I want to do this. Well, I've called you to do this. But I want to do this. This will be better for you. No, I like to do this. Yeah, but if, if you do this, it will hurt you and harm you and could kill you. I don't care. We're like stubborn little kids. I want to do it. And what we have to make sure is, is we're recognizing that everything that God says to us is for us and good for us. He's good. He's able. He's faithful. Don't forget those three things. And what he says here is, be not like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay with you. Don't be like that. Don't be that Christian that's like, okay, I've got to do this. Live joyfully, because that's where it's talking about. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And keep in mind and look at the difference from how David was in verses 3 and 4 to how he is in verse 11. Verses 3 and 4, when I kept silent, bones wasted away groaning all day long, day and night your hand was heavy upon me, strength was dried up like a hundred degree summer. Look at what's happening in verse 11. What's happening in verse 11? Polar opposite. It says, be glad in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. How are we upright in heart? It's because God is the one who made us upright. He picked us up. He set us up on the rock. We're upright. We're ready. We're strong because he is our strength. 
Before his eventual conversion, uh, philosopher Mortimer Adler was pressed on his reluctance to become a Christian. And this is how he replied. He said, there is a great gulf between the mind and the heart. I, I was on the edge of becoming a Christian several times, but I didn't do it. I said that if one is born a Christian, one can be lighthearted about living up to Christianity. But if one converts by a clear, conscious act of will, one had better be prepared to truly live a Christian life. So ask yourself, are you prepared to give up all your vices and weaknesses of the flesh? Mortimer Adler wrote a book called How to Read a Book, which I thought was the dumbest title I'd ever read. I've got to read a book to learn how to read a book. But obviously, there's different levels of how you can read and how you can comprehend. But this is Mortimer Adler, this philosopher who came to Christ, who had a number of vices and a number of weaknesses. Now, some of you who have been in church world your whole life, you're like, well, I haven't been like that. I haven't had any weaknesses. I've been in church my whole life. God didn't really have to work that hard on me. He might have had to work harder on you. Because as someone who was born on a Friday and in church on a Sunday, I know from whence I speak. Because I thought that I was piling up goodness on the scales. And what was happening was I, was I was just like any other person outside of church. I was relying on my own self to provide me happiness and to even think that God would be okay with me. Listen, we're all in need of grace. We're all in need of his mercy. And right now, God's heavy hand might be on you. And I remember those days when God's heavy hand was on me for about a year. And I thought he was being very, very cruel to me. Because no matter how much I read my Bible, no matter how much I prayed, no matter how much I sang, no matter how much I went to church, no matter how much I talked to people to get counsel, I could not get any relief until I got relief. God was bringing me to a point and he was bringing me to this crossroad and he was basically saying this or this fork. He's like, are you going to rely on your feelings or are you going to rely on me? And my, my feelings, and when that happened, the heavy hand drove me to Christ. But for some of you, the heavy hand of that guilt may be driving you away from Christ because you're blaming him for some reason or another. I'm, I'm telling you, God loves you enough not to keep you where you are, but to bring you where you need to be. And no matter your transgression, no matter your sin, no matter your iniquity, Christ is there through the cross to bring you. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. Because your heart can be full of him who leads you and guides you in every single way. You're going to go through some stuff this week. And maybe you'll have a great week and you're going to go through some stuff this coming month. Maybe this past week was, was terrible and it was really a chore for you to even come to church. I'm glad you came because I think God gives us his word to help us to realize this world is broken. Can we all agree? This world is broken. But we, we're not always agreeing on the solution. But we do know that there is one who made us, who loves us, who's wired us, knows what's best for us, knows what's good for us, and when we're off, his heavy hand brings us back exactly where we need. Lean into that. Lean into his word. Keep pursuing him and see all that he is for you. And in that blessed life, you will be forgiven. Your sin will be covered. 
And he will not count any iniquity against you. And he will be with you always, instructing you, teaching you, counseling you, giving you gladness, giving you joy. He will never leave you or forsake you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he will always be with you even until the end of the age. This is our Jesus. And I pray that this is our Jesus. This is the Jesus that you have trusted in. If not, don't leave. Please don't leave without all of what he's done for you being a reality for you and in you and through you. Heavenly Father, guide us in all that we do and say, use us for your glory. And as we, Lord, look at your word, Lord, we are comforted knowing that by your Holy Spirit, you have preserved your word to remind us of all that you are. We have nowhere else to look but to your word to see totally who you are. And we thank you, Lord, that by prayer, you change us. You rewire us. You show us the way. You lead us and instruct us and counsel us. And Lord, I pray that if we're giving in more to the desires of the flesh rather than the fruit of the Spirit, I pray that this would be the morning that our lives and our hearts would change. So whatever you're doing, Lord, may we lean into what you're doing. If there's some here that have never received Christ, but this is the morning they want to make that public, Lord, give them the strength to do it. Turn those white knuckles loose to where they'll come and make it public that Christ is their Lord. And Lord, if there's any here who are followers of Jesus, but that your heavy hand is upon them because of issues of of sin, whether private or public, Father, I pray that this would be the morning that they would repent. They would acknowledge, they would confess, and they would repent and see the forgiveness. If we confess our sins, your word has said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, not from a little bit of unrighteousness, not from some unrighteousness, but all unrighteousness. May we take you up on your promise, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We sing.